In the first few months of uh, my ministry here, when I began at Rexdale in October of 1980, they happened to coincide with the publication of a new magazine called Leadership Magazine that Christianity Today put out. It was a quarterly magazine. It came out four times a year. And in the very first couple of issues, I remember reading two articles that was so timely for me as a relatively young man beginning a full-time ministry in a local church. The insights and perspective from those two articles have remained with me for nearly three decades. One of them dealt with this question. How do leaders distinguish and people distinguish between a vision that is from God and projects? The answer was as chilling as it was powerful. He said, projects are usually born in the human ego, while a vision comes from God and is usually discerned in prayer. And the advice that he gave to leaders, if you're not quite sure which it is, he said, just let it sit there for a while and see what God does. And he used an analogy from an Old Testament story, and because I'm going to refer to that analogy throughout, let me just spell it out a little bit if you're not familiar with it. One of the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel, once saw in a vision a whole valley of dry bones. Kind of symbolized the nation of Israel in its hopeless condition. And after being confronted with the fact that these bones cannot live, the wind of God begins to blow and these bones begin to rattle. <laughs> and um, turns into a vast army of people. And this author, writing, referring back to that said, and referring to this any idea, and you want to make sure that it is from God and not from man, he said, let the dry bones bleach in the sun and see if they rattle at the movement of God or not. As I said, I've never forgotten that. And a congregation deserves to know, at those critical stages in the congregational life, whether a journey or an initiative, the kind of one that we've been on for three years, and will continue again, whether that is from God, or was it born in the human ego. And this morning, as we come to that, uh, that, that point as we conclude this very brief three-week call to continue a journey that we began three years ago that we've come to know as Imagine. I want to set before you how God rattles some dry bones after a few years. Because sometimes in order to move forward, we have to move back and see how things began. And just a brief word for those of you who might be visiting with us. If you're visiting with us from another church, this is probably no direct pertinence to you at all. Please pray for us. Bless us with your prayers. And if you happen to come from a non-church denomination, just happen to be dropping in today, these are not exactly typical services, but again, we trust that as you just watch and observe, that you will still learn from what God has to share with you. I want to use as a basis, as a point of departure this morning, Paul's letter to the Philippian church. The, Philippian, the letter to the Philippians was, is probably one of the most deeply personal letters from the 13 letters of the Apostle Paul that we have. And because geography is involved, let me just kind of quickly set the geographical scene for you here. This is the Mediterranean world in which the Apostle Paul's three or four missionary journeys took place. Just to kind of orient us where we are, Paul, when he wrote the letter to Philippians, was in Rome under house arrest. Philippi was somewhere there, kind of close to uh, north, a little bit of northeast of Greece, um, in Macedonia, and just to complete the picture, Jerusalem is over there. So the, this is the geographical world in which Paul did his work, and he wrote to Philippi from Rome. And he begins with these words. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ Paul was confident that this journey of faith that this Philippian church had been with him for all these years and had continued from the very beginning and that he can count on that right till the very end because of how God got the whole thing going and so as I began thinking about that I thought okay how, how did it never occurred to me to jump from Philippians to Acts before how did God get this whole thing going what did God do that forged such an amazing heart to heart relationship between the Philippian church and the Apostle Paul that long after he left the region they continued to be involved with him on this global mission together for that we have to go to the book of Acts and Acts 16 and, and don't worry about all these unfamiliar uh, names of places it all took place in modern day Turkey and I'll show you a map again for a minute Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia and notice these words having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia when they came to the border of Mycenae they tried to enter Bithynia but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to so twice God stopped them from preaching the gospel we don't normally stop to think about that so they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas during the night Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him come over to Macedonia and help us after Paul had seen the vision we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them this is what it kind of looked like visually that's basically Paul's second missionary journey and it began in Antioch and initially they traveled through Galatia and Phrygia that first black dot is Galatia the second one is approximately the region known as Bithynia, as Phrygia and they were not permitted by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel then. So they finally entered the region of Mycenae and from there they decided they would go to Bithynia. The Holy Spirit stopped them again. And so they came back through Mycenae and ended up at this little place called Troas, very close to modern day Istanbul. And there they received this Macedonian vision to go over to Macedonia to preach the gospel. This is a very significant moment in the early church's history because the gospel went from Asia to Europe for the first time. And all of us who are of European descent this is a key moment in our history in your history but the interesting thing is look what God did just to get Paul to Philippi no to this and no to this and no to this and finally get them to Troas and then give them a vision and say now you come on over no wonder when Paul began to think of the Philippian church he said wow even to get me there God had to do a whole bunch of no's first and then Look at the things that happened in that city. Paul's practice was always to go to the Jewish synagogue first in a new city. But there was no synagogue in Philippi. So he went outside the city gates to the river where there would normally be a place of prayer. And he found a few women there. And so Paul began to preach the gospel to them. And a businesswoman named Lydia, probably a textile business, she was a dealer in purple we are told. God opened her heart it says to the gospel and she obviously being quite influential led several members of her family to Christ and her whole household became followers of Christ and so they immediately invited the Apostle Paul to enjoy the hospitality of her home and the church in Philippi was born on another day on a visit to the, to the place of prayer again there was a fortune telling slave girl who brought all kinds of money to her fortune telling masters uh, by telling fortunes and so she was continuing to disrupt Paul's preaching and so Paul turned around and the power of the Holy Spirit cast out this demon from her much to the consternation of her owners who now lost a very huge source of income 
And so they took Paul and Silas to the magistrates and for this they were beaten, they were stripped and beaten and thrown into the inner part of the jail with their feet in their stocks. But at midnight, by the power of the Holy Spirit, even in this miserable situation, Paul and Silas began to sing hymns and songs and pray. And this time the God who opened the heart of a woman opened the jail cells. And all the jail cells went open and the prisoners were free and the Philippian jailer said, I better kill myself because I'm going to be... Basically, I've lost my life as a jailer. I didn't do my job. And so Paul cries out to him and says, No, 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 it's okay. We're all here. And the Philippian jailer says to him, What must I do to be saved? And I don't think it was a religious question at all. I think what he was saying was, How do I get out of this with my life? (laughs) And Paul said, You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so the Philippian jailer became a Christian. His whole family responded to the gospel. He took Paul over to his house and Silas dressed all their wounds. And then the next day they ended up in Lydia's house. They were freed by the magistrates when they found out they were Roman citizens. And they all went back to visit in Lydia's house, blessed the church and moved on from there. And that's a pretty amazing beginning. All these no's to get him to come to Troas even though what he wanted to do in Mycenae and Bithynia was good, preach the gospel, God said no to a good thing, for a better thing, at a later time. And then, by this amazing miracle of opening a woman's heart, then casting out demons from a slave girl, which got them into jail, so they could get out of jail in a dramatic fashion, and the church was established. No wonder Paul says, I am coming with a beginning like that, (laughs) we aren't going to stop. Not only that, Paul said, look at the evidence after that. At the end of the letter, he writes these words. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, referring to this glorious beginning, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Apparently no other church cooperated with Paul in the early missionary journey like the Philippian church did. No wonder God established it in such an amazing beginning because he had a very special role for this church. And if you want to know what enabled them to do this, you remember a couple of weeks ago I directed our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 where when Paul in inspiring the Corinthian church to finish their collection for the poor in Jerusalem Use the Macedonian church. And this this was probably the church he was talking about. And he said, you know, in spite of their tremendous trials, even their extreme poverty welled up in a rich generosity because God's grace was poured out upon the Philippian church. So God's power established the Philippian church and God's grace enabled them to continue in the heart-to-heart relationship with the Apostle Paul. And as I was thinking for several weeks about this final message, it was this picture of this Philippian church, that one verse, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue. Because we're all about continuing a journey that we started. And this this picture, when you put it all together, you see it. No, no, come over here, a Macedonian vision goes over to Philippi, gospel crosses over into Europe, there two wonderful conversions, a wonderful jailbreak, a church being established, and then the grace of God continuing to be poured out upon these people so they remain in a partnership with the Apostle Paul long after he's gone from them. That's the work that God did. And so Paul is confident, we're going all the way until we stand before Jesus. It was this picture that settled in my heart that I want to set before us today. 
You know why? Because my confidence that you and I together as Rexdale Alliance Church that we will complete this journey of faith that we are on and will be on it until the day we stand before Jesus when faith will become sight that it will be for exactly the same reason. My confidence lies in the fact of what God did at the beginning. I remember many years ago Bill Hybels when he was teaching about casting vision he said sometimes we will not be ready to go forward until we've gone backward to take a look at what God has done. And a few months ago when uh, as a leadership we were working through the processes for these three weeks of calling our congregation to continue the journey and to finish that the financial dimension of the task that we started three years ago I said I got input we got input on a whole lot of things including what I should be preaching at these times not the details but the kind of things that should keep in mind one person said something that stuck in my mind he said make sure you anchor the call in God moments this is exactly what this is all about Paul was reminding the Philippians of the God moments and I, I want to remind you today because we're going to look backward today we're going to look back at the beginning and anchor it in some God moments so that your faith and my faith may rest in the fact that God took what might have been a project born in the human ego, rattled the bones and turned it into a vision that is close to his heart. Some of you who were here in 2000 will know, 2000, late 2000, early 2000 will know that at that time we were planning on building. But at the very last moment the elders basically said no. It was like God saying no to Paul's early vision of preaching here and preaching there. We'd even got to the points where concept drawings had been made. And those bones lay bleaching in the sun for three years. Until all of a sudden, quite unexpectedly, God began to rattle the bones in November of 2004. And we did build. But when I look back on it now, there were a couple of significant differences between what we were planning to do in 2001 and what we ended up doing in 2005 onwards that are very pertinent to what I'm talking about this morning. Of course, some things are easier to see in hindsight. And one thing that at least was a little bit more apparent to me now than then was that that first building that we had planned was probably had a large part of it rooted in human ego. It was a much bigger building that we needed. It would have cost a lot more than we would have afforded to spend. But most important there was no journey of faith component associated with it at all. That thing that we've been talking about, this journey of faith in all dimensions of our life, raising our whole church's level of faith to a whole new um, level, the invitation to a spiritual process where God works in our hearts, this was not even on the radar screen in 2001. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that God let the bones bleach until things began to rattle again in 2004. Because what we did do in 2004 was something that, yes, it involved a building, much more modest, but wonderful, so beautifully used around every day, all parts of it, but also involving significant outward components. Not, it wasn't just about us. It, it involves our upper room community church, it involved the Alliance University College, Ambrose College, and involved the nations of the world, including Cambodia. And he undermined, underlined, I should say, the journey of faith component then as remarkably as he did as he's doing now. Last week if you were here and if you weren't here please pick up the tape you, you can pick up a free CD for that last week I focused on the issue why would God begin directing us 10 months ago to this phase when he knew that 10 months down the line 
there would be a huge global financial crisis. And last week I addressed the whole sermon on that from scripture. To show you that was an issue of the human heart and what is it that we are going to trust? God or man in these circumstances? What I did, what I had lost sight of was that Imagine was born in a financial crisis as well, but a very different one. In 2004, November, when God began to rattle the bones, there was no global financial crisis. But do you know, some of you would not if you were not here at that time, but many of you were. There was a huge potential financial crisis hanging over Extep. Because in September of 2004, we were hit like a bolt from the blue with a lawsuit. A lawsuit that involved incidents that happened 20 plus years ago at that time involving people that weren't even here anymore. And the way these lawsuits are written with uh, interest over 20 years, it was a multi-million dollar lawsuit. That was September. But it was in November 2004 that God chose to start rattling the bones. And we as a leadership, as elders, as executive committee, uh, as a couple of the leadership team from Upper Room Community Church, as we began to wrestle with this larger vision that God was putting before us. And we had many meetings. We had difficult questions asking back and forth. But you know, I, I almost choked with tears of joy this past Wednesday when I suddenly realized, going back over those days, that while there were all kinds of questions that were needed to clarify the vision, I can't remember one leader ever saying, we better not do this, there's a huge risk, there's an unfinished lawsuit hanging over our head. And I said, God, thank you so much. Thank you that you gave that kind of faith to our leaders. That yes, they were responsible in clearing the vision for what you were asking for us, but they were not going to play it safe just because there was a potential lawsuit hanging over us. I'm curious, who in their right mind, who in their right mind, if all we went about was by human reason, which leadership in their right mind would decide to launch a $4.8 million vision when a multi-million dollar lawsuit was hanging over our head? But let me tell you what God did, in case some of you weren't here, others of you had forgotten. Between November and March, November of 2004 to March 2005, we worked out all the details, especially the timeline of the Imagine campaign. And it was decided that we would launch the campaign in a series of seven messages that I would preach on May the 15th. We I went back over all the minutes just to make sure I got all the dates right. <laughs> it was sometime in, in March, in the elders meeting in March, that we finally decided that May the 15th was when we would launch the campaign. Well, after, after the leadership had made that bold vision forward, God began to show his hand. <laughs> on April the 21st, we had our um, mediation hearings. So April the 20th, we had a, con we had a concert of prayer here. Uh, we didn't pray about winning. We just simply prayed about God's justice being done. Because through the wisdom of one of our elders and a few other men on the board, God directed us at this mediation hearings to not defend ourselves, but we simply wrote and read a corporate statement of repentance. Later on, at the end of eight hours of mediation, the, the, the mediator told us, he said, that corporate repentance was the key to opening the resolution we were able to settle a lawsuit for, for an infinitesimal fraction of what it could have been and we didn't do it reluctantly, we did it joyfully we met with our plaintiffs at the end of that evening because they were known to this congregation and then one other beautiful thing the plaintiffs as part of the non-monetary settlement said we would like for you to read this corporate repentance statement that you gave to us we'd like you to read it to your whole congregation and they said, we would like to be there. We said, okay, when would you like to be there? You know what Sunday they chose? May the 15th. 
And on the day that we had settled in March, before we knew what was going to happen to the lawsuit, we were able to read that corporate statement of repentance, hug and weep with those people with whom we were involved in the law. And even that wasn't over, because April 21st was a Thursday night, and our executive was meeting that night. Some of you will remember that night. I came at the end of the evening to give them a report of the amount of the settlement. And do you know, I discovered, uh, we were told, I was told by the executive, that just not too long ago, the church had been given a legacy, which after taxes would amount to almost exactly the amount of the lawsuit settlement. Now go figure, folks, isn't your heart overjoyed that this is the kind of God that we have? Why should we be worried about financial situations when he could work that? So, In fact, if I was thinking clearly, I should have anticipated this present situation. Because Imagine was born in that kind of a situation. Is it any surprise that Imagine is continuing in that same situation? So that God, so that two years from now, we'll tell another story of how God has worked. That's the corporate God moment. I have a personal God moment to share as well because it's equally important. And, and you'll see why it's important. It isn't just because I want to talk about myself. It's because it's very because what happens to me and what happens to you are very closely linked to each other. You see, God began to work in my life about financial issues way before I joined the staff of this church. It was actually in the mid-70s. I was 30 years old, working with Atomic Energy of Canada. I had a very good job, lived in a nice home in a good area. And most primarily through Rich Ronald Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, I had to start thinking about biblical principles and finances. Long So those were some issues I settled a while ago. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not pretending I'm not vulnerable to all of the consumer stuff that goes on. I have my own little Achilles heels. I, they're mostly gadgets. You know, That's what I, I get excited about. So I'm, I'm just as vulnerable as any of you. I'm not pretending I'm not. But the issue was largely settled. I have a much bigger idol in my life which exerts a far greater influence on me than money ever does. That is, I don't like change. I don't like change because I don't like uncertainty. I don't mind difficulties, I just don't like to be surprised. I don't like uncertainties, and I don't like uncertainties because of the time drain that's involved. I have no trouble giving away money, I have a hard time giving away my time. All Sham has to say is, honey, I think we should repaper the bathroom again, and I start getting deeply agitated. Because now I've got visions of scraping this paper, and I call all wallpaper rebellious when you scrape it. And then you've got to put up the other stuff, and those equally rebellious bubbles that won't get off the way. Then you come to those turns in the wall where you suddenly discover that no one builds a vertical wall anymore at the corners. And, and then, of course, Peter and Sham always want a third coat of paint when I think one is good enough. So I fight back. I fight back inside if I don't fight back outside. See, that's what I mean. And it's equally true when it comes to the local church. My problem is not, you will never have to worry about me giving you projects born in the human ego. My problem is my desire to avoid change gets in the way of God-given visions. That's my problem. So in fact, when the elders pulled the plug on the building in 2001, I was delirious. <laughs> Because now we could just continue the way we were before, right? And so when the bones began to rattle in 2004, I wasn't a happy camper at all. You see, I'm a fairly uh, one of those late adopters, people who study the process of change. 
they talk about those 2% of the people who are the real innovators and the initiators, then there's 16% of the people that are the early adopters, and then there's the late adopters. You know, I'm a fairly late adopter. In fact, one of the staff members was a very... Uh, at the 2% end of the spectrum, said, I, I remember saying, Sundar, do you ever feel urgency about anything in life? <laughs> anyway, but we were being moved along on a tide because I told you, God began this work. And so when the bones start rattling, you, can't, you better get out of the way, right? Or be part of the process. So now I knew we were going to launch this thing on May the 15th, so I was getting my sermons ready. I said, God... I, I, can, I can cast this vision because the leadership is behind it I'm kind of coming along slowly but still I said I've got seven sermons to preach how am I going to do this don't get me wrong I can put together seven sermons and you won't know the difference but I will know them I have never in my life stood in this pulpit and preached what I'm not passionate about I don't say I always obey them perfectly but I have never got up here and preached something pretending to feel what I don't feel and I said God how am I going to do this how am I going to do it for six more Sundays? Anyway, I preached the first one and that was May the 15th and I was all excited because of the miracle of the lawsuit that God had done so I was being carried on. Anyways, May the 17th, the timings are just exquisite here. May the 17th was our district conference and every two years all of our staff are supposed to go to district conference. So, okay, so I went there and the speaker was a man by the name of Bob Russell and his first sermon was all about preaching the word of God and that was rah-rah and good and I did that so I was fine but nothing significant. Anyway, we kind of endured all the business sessions the next day and then the third day he got up to preach his last message and then he told a story. He said uh, he, he had a church in Knoxville, Tennessee and he was called to this church when he was 22 years old. It was a struggling church with 125 people and they called him. They had tried to call two other pastors. There were immorality in the background and failures and whatnot. So they finally took a huge risk and called this 22-year-old pastor to a church. Well, now he had been in that church for 40 years. It had grown to 18,000. And he said, me and our leadership recently looked back upon these 40 years and we said, what have, what have we learned? What? Uh, and he said, we, we asked ourselves the question, what is the church that God blesses? And he said, we saw seven principles at work. He said, these were not principles we knew and tried to follow. <laughs> we looked back and discovered these seven principles. He said, I don't have time to give you all seven. I've written a book. You can buy the book if you want. He said, but I'm going to tell you the most important one. What is the most important principle when it comes to a church that God blesses? Well, I was sitting straight up, totally hooked. You know why? Because I love Rexdale with all my heart and I want God to bless this church. I said, okay God, whatever you tell me, I'll do it. <laughs> this is what he said. God blesses the church that takes risks. <laughs> okay, I'm in. <laughs> you know what? Now I could be passionate about whatever he gave me to preach. Now I was fully on board. The same God who orchestrated this lawsuit timing miracle so exquisitely brought an unknown preacher into my life two days after the launch. I mean, the timing is unbelievable. This time to deal with issues in my own heart. That's why I could get up here confidently and pray this was about money, but it has always been about far more than money. It has been about the condition of our hearts on a whole variety of issues. For some it may be the heart related to money. For others like me it was heart related to issues of time and uh, smoothness of life and all that stuff. So now I was no longer enduring because God had called me to embrace this journey with my whole heart. And then at the end he said one more thing. He said a church can recover from mistakes but she will never recover from stagnation. 
And so any last little hesitation I had was all gone. I said, okay, we're not going to be a stagnating church. We might make mistakes along the way, and we're prepared to make the mistakes, but we will not stagnate in this church anymore. So those are the God moments in which God has anchored this. The God of the Philippians is our God. He said no in 2001. He began to rattle the bones in 2004. He did it when there was a major potential crisis hanging over this church. And he exquisitely solved the problem both in the church's life and in your pastor's life. And he did them both and he matched the timing absolutely perfectly. Don't you want to see what he's going to do again? <laughs> and he never, as C.S. Lewis said, for God, for whom all of heaven and earth is not enough to express himself once, the one prayer he will never answer is encore. He doesn't have to repeat himself, so watch out for something brand new he's going to do in each of our lives. One final amazing God moment that brought all of this together. So I was into this sermon series, I was four weeks into it now, and enjoying myself in, in the sense that I could preach with honesty and integrity, but still not knowing what was going to happen, because we weren't going to be taking the pledges till October and all of that stuff. I was uh, four weeks now into the process, Sunday, June the 12th. Well, for one time I'm glad I kept records of all these dates, you know. Uh, I've never been able to reconstruct them. That was before the building, so the, you know the hallway that went in here before, and they had this big, uh, um, what do you call those things, the mailbox slats over there. Well, I was going for the 5 o'clock prayer meeting, and there was this crumpled envelope that was just stuffed into my place. So I thought, so I want to have, leave that lying around, who knows what's in there. So I picked it up and brought it back to the office. Everything was much closer those days, you know. So I, I got in there, but I had two minutes left. I said, let me open the envelope. I opened the envelope, and a couple of hundred dollar bills, I think, fell out. Uh, and then I took out this letter, and this is what this letter said. It was anonymous. I recently became a single mother who had been relying on the social assistance and the child benefit as the only source of income. I have no credit cards, no assets of any sorts other than what I've been saving from the government assistance based income. However, a couple of months ago, this was dated June the 12th, so a couple of months ago would be April 12th, which would be before anybody had ever heard of Imagine. However, a couple of months ago, I felt a strong conviction for not having tithed on this ridiculously small amount of income. As I tried to put aside the strong conviction using my argument that I could not spare a penny from this income which was being carefully divided and put away for emergency use for my child's benefit, a couple of Sundays ago, you began speaking about the Kairos moment. So now it was May the 15th. And I truly believe that this was now my own Kairos moment to take the step of faith and risk and give unto the Lord what belongs to Him. I come with a grateful heart that remembered the incredible blessings of the one that created and knows me. The amount may not be much, but I desire to give as the one who gave her penny unto God, as it was everything that she had to her name. Please be encouraged that your obedience to the Lord and your faithfulness to this body is making an eternal impact. And notice she said, I come with a grateful heart. Not a compulsive heart, not a reluctant heart, but a grateful heart. And she signed it beautifully, a worshiper. Do you know how much money there was in the envelope? $6,300. Now you talk about a God moment. wonder what Jesus would have said if he was there. Here's the widow. With her, the God of 2,000 years ago is alive and well in our midst. And I hope, I hope with all of my heart this look back has given you some confidence that we're not dealing with egos, uh, projects born in the human ego. But we are dealing with things that God has asked us to do. Because the bones have indeed rattled. So, in a, in a, so I'm glad she signed it a worshiper because what we're going to do in the next few minutes is to worship God in a very specific way. 
uh, as I mentioned to you over the last couple of weeks. And by the way, if you are a regular worshipper here and haven't, for whatever reason, have been away for the last both the last two weeks, you have not much context for what we're going to do right now. So you just sit and listen, pick up the CDs of both last week's messages. There are packets available at the ushers, and you can just listen to those messages and then uh, do your part later on as God shows you. But for the rest of us who are ready, uh, we're going to take a few moments, and she's going to come and play reflectively so we can be quiet and aware of what God is doing in our own hearts. Uh, you see inside in your bulletin there's a pledge card in there and one side of the pledge card simply gives you some idea of how small amounts can become large amounts $10 a week over two years can become $1,000 $10 a week by the way is one Tim Hortons coffee a day if you want to get some perspective that's what it does and on the other side is a place for you to make your pledges and you just do whatever God has told you to do uh, there's a place for you to write your name and your address commit yourself to prayer certainly no matter what you do if this is indeed something that God started it is something that God is continuing and God's going to finish saturating this in prayer. We've had people in all three services for all three Sundays praying right during the service as well. Thanks to Ruby Saw and her prayer team that she arranged. We're so grateful that we can saturate this whole thing in prayer and to continue to pray. So certainly whatever else you do, please pray for us. And then you can commit yourself to whatever financial gift God has allowed you and encouraged you to do it. And by the way, just to let you know, your confidentiality is totally protected. Uh, the only people who ever see this are the controller of our church and the bookkeeper for obvious reasons to be able to give you your receipts and things like that. And even if you decide not to participate in any way at all, again to preserve your confidentiality so no one will know what you're doing, please feel free to seal the envelope and put it in the plate as the ushers go by. It's just strictly between you and God. And then I did get one email from an individual who said, hey, I'm totally on board, I want to participate, but I need some more time to pray and think about these things perfectly okay if you need to do that but then we do need to trust you to bring the envelopes back when your time because we're not going to be revisiting this thing after this is over so we're just going to take a few moments and I want to pray for us together initially you know when I was putting this sermon together this is Paul's prayer to the Colossians I thought I was going to pray this for you then I realized no it's not me it's not me praying for you it's us praying for one another so can we just read this prayer out aloud and then we'll just take a few moments to be quiet let's pray this prayer with me may God fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding, in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. You know, I'm always surprised uh, from where the benedictions come. <laughs> uh, this one was quite unexpected. It's actually very much related to the message and what I shared with you. Uh, yesterday, I was getting ready. I'd gone out to the ravine, dropped Vijay off at the airport. Then we, I went to the ravine, prepared my heart, had a wonderful time of prayer. We were, had a special prayer meeting at 5 o'clock just to pray specifically for our services in addition to during. And so I was really looking forward to that. So I got ready and came up at 4.15 and tried to hook this computer up and it wouldn't hook up took about 30-40 minutes and I went to get Wayne's computer, it wouldn't hook up as well. You know. I put it back in my office, it works fine. Put it up here, it wouldn't work. So I was getting, and it was almost close to the prayer time right now, and you know me, I already told you what my idol is. You know. I'm getting rattled and irritated by this time. So anyway, I thought, I can't, having called the time of prayer, I can't not show up. So I just parked this thing in my office and went to pray. But of course, my mind was agitated all the time. You know. So 
wasn't very pleased with the way I was responding. And then all of a sudden God said, see, you tell everybody else this is about their heart, this is your heart too. I'm just showing you my heart. And then almost as soon as I saw that, uh, you've seen, mo- very few of us probably have had the privilege of actually going to the Sistine Chapel. Remember Michelangelo's famous painting of God's finger reaching out and touching him? That whole thing just popped before my eyes. And God said, that's my blessing for you. The finger of God touching hearts like yours, everybody else's, to breathe life into it. So, I just want to bless you with that beautiful finger of God touching whatever part of your heart that is showing you these days. And He will change that heart. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.